Today's episode is brought to you by GCN Plus, the home of live bike racing and also home to the world's greatest collection of cycling films. You can catch all of your favourite monuments, classics, grand tours and much more live and ad-free on GCN Plus, including the Tour of Flanders on Sunday the 3rd of April. As well as the live action, you'll have access to on-demand highlights, replays and unrivaled analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Adam Blythe in the weekly World of Cycling show. Then, after the racing, GCN Plus has an ever-growing library of over 100 exclusive feature-length documentaries, each exploring the full breadth of the cycling community, from incredible cycling challenges to the deep history of our sport, all for you to tune into. All UK listeners to the Cyclist Magazine podcast can currently get 25% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. All you have to do is head to gcn.eu slash cyclist25. That's gcn.eu slash cyclist25. James, have you heard of the Wahoo System Training App? The Wahoo System Training App I have, but please elaborate. System utilises world-class coaches with epic content to help you take your performance to the next level. With more than 650 training plans to choose from, System combines off-the-bike workouts, including yoga, strength and mental training, with comprehensive workouts on the bike to not only make you a better cyclist, but a better athlete. This all sounds good, but tell me more. System also allows you to train with the likes of Phil Guyman and Ian Boswell in its A Week With series, ride the world's most iconic routes through its on-location feature, and relax with one of its inspiration documentaries. Oh, and my favourite thing is its Pro Series Workouts feature, which matches your training ride to actual pro races, which is quite good. This is most excellent. Where do I sign up? Well, to start your 14-day free trial All you have to do is download the Wahoo system app on iOS, Android or desktop today. Hello, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me down the other end of the microphone is Mr. James Spender. Buongiorno. Hello, James. And on today's episode, we have Tyler Hamilton. Um, You all know who Tyler Hamilton is. Uh, but we're going to have a long conversation with him about lots of stuff, the obvious and the not so obvious. But before we get to that, James and I are going to be running through some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James, lovely to see you. You've caught the sun a little bit. I can see in your face. You've been out riding in the spring sun, I see. How lovely How lovely for you to have noticed, Joe. I am, as the Americans would say in the 50s, he's pretty tan. He's pretty tan. Yeah. I'm not actually that tan. You're, just you're not Ron Seal. Nice. You're not Ron Seal. You're just slightly, I don't know, beige sofa. Yeah, no, I'm a few shades over kind of magnolia. I'm like a, ham- I'm like a house white. Mm. <laughs> I think that's a pharaoh and ball colour. Yeah, but that's good to see that you've been out on your bike, James, because it suggests that there's going to be some things that you're liking and disliking about riding on two wheels. Well, I mean, all right, Bergerac, yes, yes, it would suggest <laughs> that. So um, I've got a new bicycle. You saw it. Actually, no, I'm not sure it. if you did see it. Did I you saw see it from afar. I'll tell you what, you saw it from afar uh, and it would have been sparkling the from afar. From it's yeah. a stainless steel, um, a chayo. Um, that's a terrible accent, but a chayo is basically steel in Italian, yes. and uh, it's made by Condor. Right. Who, uh, have the bike brand, not the birds. Not no, the I mean, that'd be cool if birds yeah. made it, like in Snow White. 
where they flew yeah. in and they picked up loads of tubes and a tiny little welding mask and got to like <laughs> tigging up a stainless steel frame. So it's a beautiful thing. I'm looking at it now and mm. it's got what are called fastback stays. So basically the little binder bolt is integrated into the top of the seat stays and it's just the neatest, loveliest little looking touch because it just makes that, it doesn't have a clamp that kind right. of sticks out from the tubes. But the whole thing is just utterly beautiful. It's yes. It's polished silver, but it's also painted purple and yellow, which I, 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 you know, I admit sounds gross. It kind of looks a little bit like it's just, you know, it's coming back on the bus from a public school, um, a little bit too it's, prim and proper. We, we, we in the office thought it was uh, inspired by the classic Mercier kit yes. of the early 60s, the Raymond Poulidor kit. Poulidor, indeed, yeah. Poulidor would be sort of a lovely name for a wine. Yes, me or, some a, or, a do- or a dog. Yeah, like a, great a name brand, for a dog. A breed of dog, not a brand of dog. A, a, brand, of dog. <laughs> yeah. a brand of dog. Uh, half Labrador, half Poodle. Yeah, a Poodle dog. Yeah. Um, but and, it's a very nice bike. It's still, uh, yes. so it's not the lightest, but I assume it rides like... How dare you say nice that? How dare you say it's not butter. the lightest? How dare you say that? It's probably not. I reckon it's probably about... She'll be about eight kilos, but she's on uh, 28 mil tyres, and the thing just absolutely glides. Definitely not the stiffest, but bloody hell. I mean, the only thing I'd say... Less liking about it. I'd love it to have integrated cables, which is such a lovely touch on bicycles these days. It doesn't have that because it just yes. doesn't have that because it's steel, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. So, but it's just, it just reminds you, reminds me, it does have disc brakes, by the way, yes. but it just reminds me just like how basic a bike can be and yet how completely brilliant. And that this is a bike that you could have 10 years, 20 years, 30 years time. A, it will still exist because it's made of something that is, you know, one of the hardest of all metals. It would take yeah. on a cockroach in a fight. And B, it's just going to stay looking kind of timeless because it just looks like a bike. Yes. That's, so that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you not liking. Um, well, I went up to uh, see my lovely sister and my nieces in Peterborough. Yeah. That required me to get a train, mm-hmm. uh, an L-N-E-R train. I can't even keep up with all these acronyms name, uh, acronyms name, acronyms mean. It's basically... London North East Rail. London North East Rail, yeah. So it'll probably be, it's another it's another franchise that's taken over from another failing franchise. And of six carriages on the way back, three of them were first class. Unbelievable. And I just think that's, I just think that is just such a, such a poor show in a country that, or in a, you know, in a world where we're really trying to get everyone to use public transport more. How, how horribly elitist, who, who have you ever bought, a, have you ever bought? A first-class ticket. How horribly elitist is it to have half the number of people paying four times the price and then stopping, you know, the little man like me getting a seat? I've never bought a first-class ticket, but I've defiantly sat in a first-class seat. Yes, good for you. Which I like. Is, I hope what you did on the way to Peterborough. I hope you defiantly sat in the first-class seat, regardless of your ticket class, and. Yeah, no. What I did, I, t- I cleared up all of. I cleared up my bag of Stella cans and Doritos crisps, and just before leaving, I just poured them all over one of the first class tables. Yeah, no, I didn't do that because friendly. I didn't do that because the only the only people I feel more sorry for than the people that can't travel first class are the people that have to clean up after the people that travel in first class. Because I tell you what, not necessarily the most considerate of passengers. No. Anyway, Believe so it's a sticky. Yeah, so there we go. Uh, first world problems, isn't it? Yeah. So well, how about you, mate? Well, I'll tell you something I'm liking. Recently, since we last recorded, I ran a half marathon, James. Uh, I don't want to toot my own horn, but... What happened to the other half? Um, what do you mean? Why did you only run a half? 
Have you done a full marathon? No, no, uh, it was a, I think you'll find I did one of the hilliest in the country. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dartford Half Marathon, if you know, you know. It's a, it's a tough one. What's Dartford that? Half. Dartford What's that? Half. 600 metres at 8% after um, 10 miles. I think you'll find. Um, yeah, tough one. But what I found out from it is that running is really hard, but I got sent something called the Pulse Roll Mini Massage Gun. Yes, you did. Unbelievable, James. It's like a thousand tiny Mike Tyson slowly rumbling you with jabs into your muscles, making you feel so much better. There's four different head attachments, and it record and there's like four different speeds. It goes up to something silly like eighteen hundred revs uh, RPM, um, and. I don't know, it's addictive. It recommends that you only use it on a certain piece of, like, a certain part of your body for two minutes maximum. But I found myself using it on my IT bands for a good five minutes after my run. That's a dangerous game. That's a dangerous game. You can do yourself yourself some serious damage there, Jay. But it feels really good. Um, Yeah, they do feel good, don't they? If you go to uh, cyclist.co.uk, in my last In The Drops, I featured it, uh, and I actually posted a video of using it on my car because I have issues with shin splints, and it was excellent. So it's also cooked, you know, it's very compact. You can take it around. It's got a little travel case. Um, and you can do yeah. basic DIY jobs with it. Yeah, you can do basic DIY jobs. If you needed to, like, uh, butterfly a chicken, if you needed to, like, tenderize some steak, you could also use it for that. So it's dual purpose. It's dual purpose. Perfect. Um, something I am not liking at the moment, James, is, as you'll notice, everyone... We've suddenly had a really lovely spate of spring weather and the temperatures have got a bit warmer. And because of that, I thought I would shave my legs for the first time this season. Uh, and what I don't like is having to sort of de-hair the legs for the first time after five or six months of not shaving. Because ultimately, I'm very impatient and it takes a long time to get rid of all the hair. Uh, what I'll then find is that I'll think I'll be done, I'll leave, I'll come back and I'll realise there's loads of clumps of hair that I've missed. Yeah. I just look silly if I wear shorts around. Um, again, first of all, problem. Problem that I could avoid if I just didn't shave my legs. But Did you do, you do you clip first and then and then razor? So I clip at this time of season, I just clip. And then when it, my legs pick up a bit of colour, then I'll go razor. I'll go to the skin. But for now, I just clip it down to like a one or a, a, a half. So you go full full Travis Bickle later in the summer. Yeah, when it, when I when I've earned the right to. Do you know what? I went for a ride today, uh, mere minutes ago. Just got back, and I haven't shaved my legs for um, you know since the last time I shaved my legs in last summer. And I'm thinking I'm not going to do it anymore. Okay. Because I mean, I'm not a particularly suit fella. So and I've got blonde hairs, so you're not really going to see them anyway. But I also kind of think, why? I was just like, why? Why am I doing it? Really? I mean, I tell you what: when you shave your legs and you've got brand new sheets, and you get into bed on a Sunday night with crisp shaven legs and nice clean sheets, oh, doesn't that feel good? But that's nothing to do with cycling. Cycling. The reason I shave my legs ultimately is because I'm a massively horribly vain person who wants to fit in with all the other massively horribly vain people who unfortunately aren't all of cycling. Most people don't. I would say most people don't yeah. shave their legs. To be fair, I, I, I do it for the satisfaction of getting into some fresh bed sheets and because it, I think it makes my legs look better, despite the opinion of those around me. Um, 
but we could be on the topic of leg shaving all, all day. But let's not. Let's get into our interview today, which is with, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Mr. Tyler Hamilton. Casting your mind back to when you first got on a bike, why did you cycle and why do you cycle now? Going back, when I first started cycling, I mean, way, I mean, way back when, just to, you know, just, you know, once I got off the training, my dad took off the training wheels. Yeah, that was really the first time I ever rode my bike and, you know, riding around the little, little small roads in Marblehead, Massachusetts. But where I re- picked up the bike again and took it a little bit more seriously when I was, was when I was a ski racer, downhill ski racer, um, they encouraged us to ride our bikes in the summertime to keep our legs in shape for the, for the winter season. So that's when I started doing it kind of a little bit more seriously, like going out kind of training, you know, putting on, putting on Lycra, not shaving the legs yet, but, you know, putting on, putting on Lycra, you know, and back, you know, back then it was definitely, I was a little bit embarrassed about wearing Lycra. I'd leave the house with my helmet on and I'd throw it in the bush. Back then it was definitely not cool. So I'd throw it in the bushes about a half mile away. <laughs> and then, I remember riding out of town with baggy shorts on, and I take through went over the light girl. Yeah, I was a little embarrassed by it because that's. I guess that's a big thing for Americans is you've got your four big sports, and if you don't play one of those, you don't really like fit in. Yeah, um, and I guess the same in the UK. If you don't play like football or soccer, you kind of you're seen as a bit bit different. So I, I remember Bradley Wiggins saying something similar when he was a kid, like the embarrassment of riding out of London in lycra and doing similar to you pretending he was just riding his bike to somewhere else and then stripping off and he's in like a, a, a skin suit or something so yeah yeah similar feeling yeah um yeah i mean here in the states it's what baseball basketball football and hockey those are our four big sports so but uh i mean cycling yeah it was uh i really enjoyed it then but you know it was uh it was tough to be like training in middle of july you know this is back just north of boston in a town called marblehead massachusetts you know, training for a ski race in January in the middle of July. And I, I, so I didn't, you know, I didn't really love cycling that love it, love it, love it until, until I started racing. Uh, once I started bike racing, that was like, you know, you had like a shorter term carrot. Uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the, the pain and the suffering and just hanging on for dear life for a long, for a long time. And then eventually progressing. And I went to university of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, that was in 1990. And I was on the ski team there. And then my sophomore year at an accident uh, training with the ski team, I broke two vertebrae in my upper back. And then that was the end of my ski career. And then that's when I really went all in on, on cycling. Because that, that concept of pain, I've seen you talk about it a lot. That it's like you've called it your superpower before, that you've always had this, or you're like, and it's like a family trait. You've got this ability to, to suffer and be quite tough. Yeah. So. Did because uh, obviously there's there's talent involved with bike racing, skill, bike handling, stuff like that. But being able to deal with pain is massive to making you a good cyclist. So did you realize quite early on actually I could be fairly good at this? Um, well, I, I mean, yeah, I kind of figured out early on that yeah, I mean, people I just kept pushing through the pain and hanging on for dear life, and like you know, event, you know, when good things happen, when you you know stay within the race or stay stay in that training ride and not you know not get dropped and. I just kept hanging on, hanging on, hanging on. Before I knew it, people get tired and where is everybody? You know, there, there, there you are, you know. But that's kind of how I, how I started. You know, that's my, I felt like my forte was had an ability to suffer pretty, 
go pretty deep in the in the pain cave. And I think in, in the sport of cycling, that helps a lot. I mean, cycling is all about suffering. So, <laughs> you know, if you can kind of um, you can feel the pain, but just kind of work with it instead of working against it. Then slowly you learn everything else. You learn how to ride your bike a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I was pretty green starting. I mean, I my first tour was in '97. I felt like I was the greenest, probably one of the greener riders ever to ride in the tour. So you got your first pro contract in 95 with us postal 95 yeah uh, i was actually it was the same organization that ran us postal but it was under a different title sponsor it was called montgomery bell and then it's 96 the next year it changed to us postal but the same organization yeah so did you i mean uh, you would have been early 20s yeah maybe 23 24 yeah and so did, did that necessitate you moving from boulder to europe um, yeah, not, you know, the first two years, 95 and 96, we were like a domestic team racing primarily like 75, 70% of the time, maybe in the States. And then the rest of the time over in Europe. Um, so I didn't really go over the pond till 97 to like get a place over there. That's when the postal team became like a full European team. A lot happened between 96 and 97, 97. We really took a big step up. We became a, a European-based team, brought in a lot of European riders, European staff, yada, 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 all that. And that was that was the year we became uh, got into the tour for our first time. And was, was Postal a kind of flagship product almost of US cycling? It was designed very much to have big investment, take young, talented riders and make a US team in a sport which traditionally just you know, European teams won cycling events, not US teams, maybe one or two US riders, maybe. I mean, they're really predecessors of the postal team where it was Motorola, you know, that, that was back in the earlier 90s. Then uh, before that, it was 7-Eleven. So, you know, riders like uh, Davis Finney, Ron Kiefel, Andy Hampston. And then, yeah, and then there was, I think, a year or two off where they, you know, lost sponsorship. And then, uh, you know, they came back again. And a lot of the same people kind of, uh, you know, pushing to have this team exist. And then, yeah, yeah, we had a lot of American riders and it, it seemed like it was America's team, you know, the U.S. Postal Service team. Because you grew up as a skier, Tyler, um, and like you kind of like fell into cycling and then sort of got, became more and more of a cyclist at university. Did you not, were you aware of, were you a fan of cycling? So did you know about Le Mans, Hampstead, Finney doing what they were doing in Europe or did you come in as a, like a bit of a novice to all that? I mean, I follow, certainly follow the sport. They didn't have a lot on television in the late eighties, early nineties. But, uh, I mean, I do remember like ESPN would show like the Tour de France for a half hour each week. <laughs> so with commercials, you know, that's whatever, 22 minutes, 21 minutes. So, uh, but I do remember following it a lot. You know, I mean, Greg Lamont was, is a huge hero of mine for sure. Uh, that was really special to see him win what, what three tours and see him beat Fignon by eight seconds, and, you know, in that final time trial. That was really neat. Yeah, and then Andy Hampson, yeah, you know, really good guy, Boulder guy, lives in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, we were actually teammates in '96 together on, on the U.S. Postal team. So his last year as a professional, and my second year as a professional. And uh, yeah, we rummed a lot. Yeah, really good guy. Yeah, he's, I also consider him. A, a hero of mine for sure. And so, '97 was your first Tour de France. What 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 was that like? How did that compare to those previous days racing domestic scene or you know possibly smaller races in Europe? Oh yeah, man. Um, 
I mean, it totally different and totally different. I mean, it's the world series of cycling really. Um, yeah, just a, such a huge scene. I didn't know. I thought that was going to probably be my first and last tour de France. I told my parents like, Hey, you know, if you can come over, come over and come over early. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't know if I'd be finishing, but I, I didn't, I thought I might be back at school and I, you know, I dropped out of college to, to pursue my professional cycling career. And I thought I might be back in school the next year or the following year. I didn't, but in 1997, I didn't know, you know, where, where this was heading, but I thought, wow, this is a cool opportunity to ride in the Tour de France. You said about selling your parents to get there early. Did you think you were going to reach the finish? Uh, I mean, a lot of people told me I wouldn't finish. So I don't know. I didn't know. And then just took it one day at a time. And that's the way to ride the Tour de France. You can't, you know, the first week is brutal, you know, crashes galore. It's usually flat, windy, and everybody wants to be in the front. But there's only so much room in the front. Who who was telling you that you weren't going to finish? Was that was that team staff or other riders? Yeah, you know, I don't remember anybody specifically saying that, but I just got that in, that feeling that you know you're you're young, you're new, and you're, you've never raced in this event before. And, you know, a lot of people don't finish the first tour, so I don't know. Well, you you did, yeah. And what what was the kind of uh, what was the speed like? Because we've we've spoken to people often ask that question. You know, what was the transition like from coming from your home country into um, into the world tour? And often they just go, it was kind of the same, but it was just so fast. Was that your experience? Yeah, I mean, just fast and fast all the time. I mean, maybe once in a while. I mean, these days it sounds like it's a lot different, but like once in a while in a long stage in the Tour de France, you might get some of the veterans like, hey, we're gonna. You know, piano, piano, easy, easy. We're going to take it easy for the first hour. You know, once in a while that would work. Other times it would not. Um, but yeah, just in general, a lot faster. And, you know, you had 200 riders who were very, very, very talented. Whereas maybe, you know, racing in the States, maybe you had 20 or 30. And in 1997, obviously the, there's the, the topic that always comes up, which is doping. When you, when you arrived there, and you've said previously openly that 97 was the first year that you, you, you took a performance-enhancer drug, did you look around at the speeds and the ability and, the, and the, what people were doing in that race and go, yeah, this isn't, this isn't racing in Utah or Colorado anymore. This is, there's something happening here. Yeah, and I felt that before racing earlier that season. You know, uh, we, you know, we started the 97 season racing, what, I think Southern Spain in February, March, you know, and, you know the speeds. There, that's when I really started noticing. And, and even go back, uh, you know, 96, 95 and 96, we, although we weren't racing full time in Europe, but you did notice, you know, you go from racing in the States to like doing really well, being consistently top five, top 10 to like, you know, I remember, remember in 96 going, coming, flying over the pond, jumping the tour of Switzerland, squeak, you know, we got in as a wildcard team and just, just get my butt kicked. I mean, hanging on, I mean, hung on, you know, some probably, yeah. I, eventually I think I dropped out because I, I gave the team at a wheel early in the stage, but just brutal, just brutal. And, you know, that's, that's when I started wondering if maybe something else was going on behind the scenes. Did that kind of, did that dawn on, not just you, but also your team, your team management, your teammates, or had you stepped into something that they were already aware of? I felt like in 97, the the veteran doctor that I first introduced me to, to doping, he was a veteran. So um, he'd been around, you know, he was new to the team then, but he, you know, he'd been working on proteins for, I think, the 
previous decades. So, and I had veteran teammates who, you know, if I had to guess, kind of knew what they were doing. We brought we brought in people that the experienced, the veterans, the um, the experienced riders and staff member members, and I think they were basically up to speed in that. If that makes sense. Yeah, because because I guess, and, and I've seen you describe it. I've seen others describe it as like that ninety seven period, ninety eight is the wild west where the the it wasn't like in the later in the nineties, the early two thousands where there was more tests albeit you could get around and you had your, your abilities to get around that, but it was a very open period. Yeah. You know, there wasn't an EPO test till they, the middle of the season and uh, the year 2000. So, so when was um, either, was it the, was the first time, which was, so you, the first uh, ped, ped performance night drug you took was testosterone in 1977. Was that the first time that you'd openly seen sort of doping or, had you been had you watched people and kind of been almost being blooded in before then they went oh here you go Tyler it's your turn now when was the first time you saw it that was the first time I saw it you know I'd had some question marks ahead of that for sure some kind of suspicious things that I saw but like uh, that was the first time I really saw it yeah and that was um and that was with your so it was Pedro Salaya your doctor wasn't it at the time you said you were quite close to you were you considered to be quite yeah, a close figure yeah. to you. Yeah, you know, Pedro was just doing his job. That was part of the deal. Part of the deal. And did it did it kind of come with a instruction sheet of um, you know, I'm not just gonna tell you to take this pill. I'm also gonna tell you what to do if someone asks you, did you take that pill? Or was there just not that level of doping control yet? Um I mean no one ever told me this is what you say if somebody asks you that. You know, you just you just kind of figured it out as you went along. But um, in terms of uh, the, the doctor would tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, basically. And because immediately, obviously, you were struggling at the time. And, and he said that he was saying this is a health benefit. This is to make you feel, you know, make you, make you healthier, make you better as you were struggling in the peloton. But on the flip side, when was, uh, can you remember when you first started, first noticed that it was working? Like, you were going out on a ride and you were like, hang on, I, I'm pushing good numbers here. When was that? You know, after that first testosterone pill, we had a, a, it was either two or three days later, we had a one-day stage race or a one-day race in southern Spain. I think it was called Luis Puig. And uh, yeah, I felt like I was a little bit recovered from, you know, smashing myself for a week in that previous stage race. So yeah, I could feel the difference. Not night and day, not night and day, but a little bit like, oh wow, I feel, I feel like I've recovered a little bit. I was going to say, did you also kind of feel a difference in your in your head? Did, how did it affect, I guess, your mood and you know your perception, not just like your uh, perception of exertion kind of thing, but just your perception of yourself on the bike? How did that change? Yeah, in the first year, I'd say in the first year of doping, like with. Uh... Um, yeah, you'd feel a little bit more confident. You'd feel a little bit more recovered. Sometimes it would, that that me- means you're in a better mood, you know, just on and off the bike. Yeah, um, you're feeling better. You're sleeping better. Did uh, did those kind of did the results start changing markedly? Were you, were you kind of just like, and also the team were was it a kind of pat on the back? You're doing you're doing really well, Tyler. This is this is great. This is exactly where we need to go. Or did you sort of feel it, it meant you could just about keep up with what was already really <laughs> really too fast 
I feel like I was already keeping up, you know, without doping, but then it was like, I guess with doping, yeah, I started to feel a little bit more comfortable in the Peloton, probably at the, at the pointy end of the Peloton. Not like I was there all the time in 97, but I think by 98, like what I got set, I got second in the first time trial there in the, in the Tour de France behind Jan Ulrich, you know, starting to sh- show some real potential, you know, that's when somebody told me to f- for the first time that, you know, maybe I, someday I could win the Tour de France. Oh, wow. So, so they, they kind of seen, cause obviously you had potential and you were always a really accomplished time trialist, uh, time trial specialist. You were always, and that, that probably stems from your pain. Well, the easiest event for me early on, cause I didn't, then I started late in bike racing was the time trial. Cause it's point A to point B as fast as you can go without anybody else, you know? So you didn't have to worry about, you know, your line or just, you know, having a, having a battle battle with somebody else. So uh, that, that came easiest for, for me early on, earlier on. And then, you know, over the years, I slowly lost kind of my ski racing muscle, you know, the, I, I a lot of upper body muscle and I slowly kind of weaned down, lost some weight and then, you know, started, started to be able to climb. Okay. And when someone tells you, you know, you've got the potential to win the tour, that must be a bit of a light bulb moment where it's like, wow, if I commit, then, you know, this guy says I can win. So he must be true. I mean, I never really believed it, but I, but I believe, okay, you know, I have some talent. This guy believes I have talent and maybe I can make something of it. Even in 98, I didn't know if I'd be back in school the next year. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, just kept, you, you know, by 99 and, you know, Lance came on the team in 98. He didn't do the tour in 98. He did the tour. Yeah. Then in 99, it was, you know, winning the tour. So. Cause in 98 was when you had more Americans join the team. You had, you had a couple more. I think Vanderveld joined in '98. Um, yeah, Vodders, Jonathan Vodders. So is that when it started to um, feel a bit more like the American team when you're surrounded by guys like you know you are from Boston. You've got obviously George Incapi who's already there, and he's from New York. But you more of your own crowd rather than it being like a, a ragtag bunch of European riders in this American team. Yeah, I mean, it did feel like America, like like yeah, America's team. Yeah, by I think it was the. I think the 99 tour, yeah, we had, a, I think we had maybe seven out of the nine riders. Seven out of the nine were Americans on the Tour de France team, I think. Was, um, was 99 was when, uh, Johan Brunil, uh, took over. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Johan, was it 98 or 99? Johan might have, I, th- I think, yeah, I think it was 99. Yeah. Correct. Yep. He came on the team. Yep. I remember reading in your book that you described you guys as the bad news bears. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a reference that's lost on it's certainly lost on me. I think it's lost on a lot of Brits. What's what's the bad news bears and why were you the bad news bears? You know, the first two years we were like just the kind of wild card selection team squeaking into the Tour de France. You know, all the t- teams of their big shiny buses. We had like two rented camper camper vans. Um, yeah, and that was ninety seven, ninety eight, even ninety nine. We'd rented camper vans. We didn't have a bus, so it was it was definitely a lower budget team. Uh, you know, the salaries weren't, weren't that high, but we were kind of scrappy. We were scrappy and we didn't give up very easily. And I guess that's, that suited your, the, your guys, the sort of the guys that you had, it probably suited like Lance, yourself, George, more Frankie, Andreu being told, being, and, and as you'd all been told, I remember you writing as well, that you'd, you'd never finish Liege, Bastion Liege, you'd never finish the tour. And now there's nine of you who are not only finishing the tour, you're, you know, leading it and winning it. So that must have really. Yeah. And then, you, yeah, you know, Lance took the yellow jersey there at the prologue and then 
I think he took it back again after the first time trial. And then I do remember that the media was like, okay, you know, Lance is strong, but he doesn't have a strong team behind him. He can't win the tour. So, you know, that was fuel to our fire for sure. And, you know, when you, when a group works together really cohesively, it's, you know, it's that much stronger. So we were, we were convinced we, we weren't going to fail. James, have you heard of the Wahoo System training app? The Wahoo System training app, I have, but please elaborate. System utilises world-class coaches with epic content to help you take your performance to the next level. With more than 650 training plans to choose from, System combines off-the-bike workouts, including yoga, strength and mental training, with comprehensive workouts on the bike to not only make you a better cyclist, but a better athlete. This all sounds good. But tell me more. System also allows you to train with the likes of Phil Guyman and Ian Boswell in its A Week With series, ride the world's most iconic routes through its on-location feature, and relax with one of its inspiration documentaries. Oh, and my favourite thing is its Pro Series Workouts feature, which matches your training ride to actual pro races, which is quite good. This is most excellent. Where do I sign up? Well, to start your 14-day free trial... All you have to do is download the Wahoo system app on iOS, Android or desktop today. The Roadman Cycling Podcast. It's hosted by Anthony Walsh and it's a cycling podcast unlike anything else. We recently had Anthony on our podcast and his approach is uniquely interesting. You're quite right, James. There's new episodes every weekday of the Roadman Cycling Podcast, and it's fast becoming one of my go-to cycling podcasts. The podcast aims to answer one Big question. How do we, that's you and me, Joe, use cycling as a tool for health, happiness and longevity? To do this, Anthony interviews everyone from world tour riders to authors and academics. I recently listened to one with former hour record holder and Giro d'Italia stage winner Alex Dowsett, which is called Finding Your Happiest Moments in the Simplest Acts. I found it very insightful. With nutritionists, biohackers, sports psychologists and loads of other experts, it's well worth checking out. Listen to the Roadman Cycling Podcast wherever you get your podcasts today. They must have been some really just quite fun days. Like we've all, you know, in our own way, Joe and I have uh, ridden bike races and also played other sports. And there's those days where you feel like you're riding with people that you're their equal and other times where you're doing you know, Joe's showing up to a rugby game, I'm playing football or something, and I'm on the underdog's team. And when it kind of comes together and you start beating those those bigger fish, that feels fantastic. And I wonder, you know, how, how did that go down with the rest of the peloton? <laughs> were you sworn at a lot in French? Yeah, I think we're in a lot of different languages, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, and it wasn't just in the Tour de France. I, I remember earlier that year, that's a re- I remember, I think Ekimov was leading a stage race, the Midi Libre. I don't think they have it anymore, but um, yeah. And I remember some of the Italian riders giving us grief. You know, who are you guys? You know, it's, you got to earn your, earn their respect. So it takes time. You know, it's like, it's kind of that fraternity mentality. You know, when you're low man on the totem pole, you know, they give you a lot of grief and then over time they earn their respect. And, and by that 99 tour, um, obviously, the you know EPO was in full use then, uh, as was uh, testosterone, HCH, 
like I don't know, I, you know, I don't know if you mind me asking, but what what was being used by the guys in that, like in 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 that first year, were you were you going full hard hardcore in '99? Was it sort of the floodgates had opened and you were on the same program as sort of the rest of the peloton, or was it still pretty low key stuff that you'd been doing in '97? Uh, yeah, I mean, we used testosterone and EPO then in '99. Yeah, uh, I don't know what you know the whole peloton was doing. You know, you don't. Not everybody's talking about exactly what they're doing, so you don't know what 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 each team is doing. So it was obviously incredibly normalized at that point, which you know we understand why. And obviously, once you know, once you're so sort of accustomed to it and see others doing it, it becomes normalized. But I, I often think, Tyler, when you were like, were you ever just sort of sitting there next to say like George Hincapie? You're from, as you said, just outside of Boston. George Hincapie's from New York. Did you ever just sort of sit back and go like, this is pretty crazy. We're in the middle of France at the Tour de France racing a load of Italians and French guys. And we're doing this, we, you know, we've got this huge secret that we keep in. Did you kind of ever go like, how did we get here? Rather than, you know, why am I not just at home in, in Boston right now or... Oh yeah. I mean, I thought I, I never said it out loud, but I thought about it a lot. I thought about it a lot in the middle of the night, looking up the ceiling. Yeah. Like well, what's going on here? This is crazy. But you know, around my teammates, I try to be you know cool in the pocket, like, you know, like Tom Brady, just chill. And like, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to rock the boat for sure. So, and you know, if you start maybe second guessing what the team doctors are doing and that gets, that gets to management, you know, you might get in trouble. Did did anyone kind of rock the boat at all? Did anyone ever go like, you know, maybe I don't I don't really fancy doing that. Or I don't fancy going that far. Or did anyone turn up and just sort of go, no, if you need me to do this, I'm going to go home now. But did you ever see that? There were a couple teammates on uh, on postal. They were a little bit older. I'd say they they were a little bit wiser, um, and I think they saw themselves not doing this long term. But, you know, they, they had families at home, they had jobs kind of waiting for them or basically, you know, a future career waiting for them. Uh, one was, was by the name of Darren Baker, American guy, another American named Scott Mercier. He just wrote a book, actually. So, you know, th- those two, you know, they didn't get that chance to ride in the tour, but I think they saw what was going on. They saw the, their future and they, they chose not, not to uh, go that route. So, you know, hats off to them for sure. They're both good guys. I stay in touch with both of them today. Was that was that a kind of uh I don't know, a common not a common occurrence, because it probably wasn't common, but an occurrence where you'd sort of one season you'd see someone sharpen a start line and the next season they wouldn't be there and someone would say, Oh, you know, the team just didn't renew their contract and you kind of knew what that meant. Or was it more open than that? Did you talk about it amongst yourselves and someone would sort of say, Do you know what, I just I just can't keep doing this anymore? And a bit like leaving the army, we was there such a thing as an honourable discharge, or was it always you kind of had to get yourself court-martialed just to get out of there? Yeah, you know, I never, no one ever had that conversation with me, like you know, before they left. But you know, I did, I did know about Scott Mercier and Darren Baker, you know, afterwards, and you know, we did, we did stay in touch. Yeah, and and the kind of you know the. For want of a better phrase, the 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 sort of gold standard of doping at the time uh, was EPA, um, which I can never say, but erythropoietin. Um, yeah, 
But could you, how, so this is a, yeah, um, a sort of two part question. How much did you know about how it worked, what it was, what it did when you were first, presumably, you know, asked to take it? And could you explain, you know, now uh, to any listeners out there who, because I think a lot of people think they, you know, they get, they get what it means, but like, don't really necessarily understand the mechanics. I'm definitely one of those people. So yeah, how does it work? Yeah, EPO, it boosts your red blood cell count, which, you know, your hematocrit, uh, the higher your hematocrit, the easier it can breathe. So, you know, that, that hill, that your that local hill that you like to go up, you know, it makes, uh, makes riding up that hill a little bit, little bit easier, you know, at, 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 at the same pace. So yeah, EPO was first introduced to me in uh, the spring of 97. It's a small like insulin type syringe. Um, yeah, back then you we inject it under your skin, so like maybe under a stomach skin fold. Um, you know, years later you do it straight into the vein. But yeah, it was a certainly a game changer. Game changer. You know, once you, when you when you consistently did it, you know, you wouldn't you know you wouldn't do it one day and feel great the next day. But but over time, over if you had done it for maybe three or four weeks, maybe a few times a week, then you could really feel the difference. And like, wow. You know, especially when you go uphill, you can really feel the difference. It's just um, you know, you're in, in another, another, in another gear. Because you you were an early adopter of like the SRMs and and the power meters. So did you notice when you in two, 97, 98, 99 that your like functional threshold power suddenly went up by thirty watts, forty watts? Was it like that night and day? Or yeah, I don't remember the number so much, but it just you could it was just the feeling, the feeling. You know, I mean, the hill you've done a thousand times, right? You just go up that hill and you're like, oh, you know, when you're going up it well and when you're going up it slowly. So it was just that feeling. Yeah, we, I did have an SRM back then, but yeah, the numbers back then didn't mean as much as they do today. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what my threshold power was. No. And how did it affect things like heart rate, though? Because you guys were definitely riding with heart rate monitors. That was quite a big, you know, seismic change in the 80s, wasn't it? The widest heart rate monitor and people riding in heart rate zones in the way they now ride in power zones did you suddenly you, you know were you going up outdoors at like 95 beats per minute all of a sudden or does it actually make your heart skyrocket no 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 um yeah i mean at the same heart rate you just ride faster basically but it's not presumably it's not as simple as just you know if i started taking epa i'm not suddenly going to start winning my local crit and becoming an elite, you know a cat one elite rider anytime soon other things have to you know go along with it um and what springs to mind is in have you, you've probably seen the documentary Icarus. Oh yeah, about, you know oh, yeah. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but he he is an accomplished um, amateur rider, and he goes into the Hope Route. You know, uh, basically a sportive uh, that only really quite rich people can afford. I've got to say, <laughs> it's not for everybody. But he's also it's a competition too, and he's just like, what if? I actually tried to take EPO on a, on a regimented program and he actually gets worse, doesn't he? Um, to begin with, and it doesn't sort of work for him. And he, why would that be the case? Uh, I mean, I don't, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, maybe, maybe his training didn't go as planned and maybe he couldn't take the pressure. You know, he looked like he was pretty intense, you know, maybe it's a pressure. Maybe he's thinking he was going to just beat everyone hands down with this new program I don't, I don't know i don't know but then with you with you guys how else did your training training kind of change and also i guess just as a more general point um how did that how did your training regimen change from you know the mid 90s 
through to you know you're still competing well into the 2000s and you know science moved on a lot as well yeah you know it went from like when i when i got there in 97 to europe full-time in europe um it was a lot of lsd long slow distance you know that's what all the big pros are doing it was all about your hours and you know you try to impress impress your teammates by just doing you know sick hours crazy hours you know fast forward whatever four or five years yeah you know that went out the back door and you know in a lot of interval training very specific work 40 20s which was one of your big for i mean honestly you took the words right out of my mouth you took the words right out of my mouth like the 40 20 like changed me as a rider as soon as i started doing the 40 20 like oh i can actually follow riders that had that snap and you know i wasn't great at it but i was but I got a lot better. I used to be before then I was like a diesel engine uh, doing 40 twenties, doing sprint work, doing, you know, big strength work, big gear work. Um, yeah. That certainly changed me a lot. The forty twenty was, was that something you started doing when you joined CSC? Wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And because the, you were with the coach who basically invented that as a. Yeah. As Luigi a Cicchini. Yeah. Mm. Cicchini. Yeah. He was great. He, he, uh, yeah. He is the man behind the forty twenty. Which, if anyone's done a forty twenty, it's a, a truly grim. Training. Yeah, brutal, brutal. brutal. Because ten minutes. Yeah, the interval's ten minutes long. Forty seconds on, like a nine or ten out of ten. Twenty seconds easy. Forty seconds on. Twenty seconds easy. Forty seconds on. Twenty seconds easy for ten minutes. Yeah, and those twenty do, seconds do, get shorter. Yeah, and shorter. do do whatever three do two three or four sets and you'll be good. You'll be good. You'll be pretty crispy. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's super effective, super effective. At the end of 10 minutes, you have six minutes and 40 seconds at a really high level, high level. Uh, basically mm-hmm. a sprint level, right? So just a, just a little bit below a sprint, but, uh, hard, 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 hard work. And yeah, if you, yeah, you do three or four sets and you, you come home, you're just wasted. Even two sets is plenty. Cause yeah. that's a, a, you know, coming onto that 40 twenties is a, it's an interesting point in your story, Tyler, is that. Unlike a lot of your contemporaries, American guys, you didn't see out the career at US Postal and then Discovery. You actually went, you know what? I need to, I'm going to move. And you went to Team CSC, which is a European team. And you went there as a team leader with, you know, you've got a map of France behind you. You wanted to win the Tour de France, which was like quite unique in that sort of story of the uh, early 2000s. So what was that? When did that like, when did you kind of make that decision that, you know, I'm in this team, I'm in this team that's winning and winning a lot and are very dominant, but actually I'm looking over at Lance and I think I've got his number if I get it right. When did that happen? Um, that happened in the year 2001. Yeah, that was the year Lance won his third tour. You know, at that point I could see myself, I could look back three years and then look ahead three years and see myself kind of in the same exact position, you know which was a great place to be, you know, helping, helping Lance win, you know, sacrificing my own, you know, form and fitness and time and energy into, you know, Lance winning, you know, continue winning the Tour de France. And, you know, I, I didn't want to look someday, look back on my career, you know, after it was done and say like, I wish I went out on my own and tried because I had a lot of people telling me that I could, you know, be a, a, a good team leader you know, and, and win some races. So finally, yeah, finally, I had heard that, you know, years in 99, 2000, but by 2001, I was starting to realize like, you know, maybe, maybe this is something I should really try. And like, you know, in, in normal life, when you start a new job, it's quite nerve wracking because you got, you've got to learn, you know, new systems, meet new people. 
So when you rock up like January training camp 2003 at CSC, were you were you nervous because not only because you you're in a new team, you're going to be the leader, which is something you weren't used to, but also that you know that doping aspect where you were in a team that had a specific program with uh, you know Michele Ferrari and and you're going to somewhere else. Did you were you like this may change? Uh, or you know what? How what were the thoughts and feelings at that time? Yeah, so I went to the team in two thousand two. So yeah, January two thousand two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was just excited, change of pace, something new and different. You know, I've been on the. I mean, I've been with the same organizations ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, two thousand seven years. So change is good. And here, here we are on a Danish team, an American company on the Danish team, you know, American sponsor. Yeah, it was just great. I was whatever, looking forward to it kind of had an open mind. I liked the way Bjorn Reese kind of thought outside the box, did those winter training, crazy training camps. You know, I think the very first one, my first time with the team, we, we landed in Copenhagen, jumped on a bus. This is coming from the States, jumped on a bus, drove to Sweden, I don't know, six hour drive. And then in the middle of the night, got in canoes, had to, had to paddle across a lake. And we slept in a teepee that first night. That was my first experience with the team. I like that kind of stuff. So I was like, yeah, bring it on, bring it on. Proper kind of a Rocky Bilbao uh, <laughs> training camp, chasing chickens around. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, you know, a lot of teams these days do stuff like that. So, And how how was it when you when you showed up in your Team CSC kit, um, you know, first day, new job, new year for everybody, uh, you, you know, your colleagues and other teams, and you saw your old team, and in particular, um, you know, Armstrong, you were someone who was instrumental in helping him make, you know, take those t- take those top steps. And I'm assuming he probably didn't want to see you leave because he could rely on you. So how did that conversation go down when you told him you were you were going to go? And then what, what did he say to you on that first day back? Uh, yeah, I mean, he knew he knew in the middle of the tour in 2001 that I was considering moving on but you know moving forward in 2002 yeah we were both cordial i don't know if we were ever that tight as friends again but uh, we were always cordial to, towards towards each other um you know he, and he had plenty you know the team the postal team by then had, had you know a bigger budget and they could afford a lot of riders so they, they you know they had guys like roberto Herras and chechu riviera you know shepherding him through the pyrenees and the alps so you know they didn't need me they didn't need me really it's true yeah, well, I mean, you, I mean, you gave him a good go, and I've always wondered, like, do you, if you, you know, if you went mano mano, do you reckon you you could have beaten him? You you had his number because obviously, as you said, he had all this other stuff. You know, he had some of the best tech available at the time. They were pioneers in logistics, but if it was just you and him racing through the mountains, you must have felt that you had you could beat him. Oh, maybe once in a while on my best day, maybe I could beat him, but I didn't, I don't, I didn't feel that way, like consistently, you know, he was a better bike ride, rider than me, but you know, I did feel like, you know, when I was on form and had, had, had an opportunity, yeah, maybe it was possible for sure. How did, um, how did your sort of perception of him, uh, as a, as a rider and then also as a friend and a colleague change over those years? Yeah. I mean, our kind of friendship kind of ended after when I left the team, you know, it was, we were, again, we were cordial, but I think that was, that was pretty much it. Our, our, our real friendship ended after that. Uh, yeah. And then he went from a rider being, you know, going from a teammate to a competitor. So yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to beat him just like everybody else did. 
And was he a good kind of uh, patron of the peloton at the time? I mean, basically, did, did other riders like him? Because obviously, you know, back in the eighties, I'd you know I would think that a lot of people were probably quite scared of Hino, but obviously had a lot of respect for him. Whereas from you know the kind of armchair position I'm coming at the sport from, it seems like most people were just kind of scared of Lance. <laughs> is that the, is that true? I think some were scared. Some had a lot of had respect for him. And I don't know. What, what, what do you think? I think there was a lot of fear. I think um, I think people maybe knew he had influences and influence in high places, and whereas you know maybe previous patrons of the peloton were just you know loud and and brash. There was a, maybe a part of this guy who could make your life hard harder than that particular day. You know, you look at yeah, and harder harder off the bike perhaps as well. Yeah, maybe. So maybe. in a team CSC, yeah. you've, you know, you join this team, you become a team leader, and that's arguably when you have your best success as a as a pro rider, right? So you you come second at the Giro, you get um, you take a stage of the Tour de France in your time at Team CSC, and you did something else which often gets brushed over. You won a monument, you won Liège Bastogne Liège, which is you know rare as hen's teeth for an American. Would you say that you know looking back now, you, you may find it hard to say that you're proud of your career or proud of moments in your career, right? But something like Liege Baston Liege, do you think oh, I'm proud of that result? Can you look back at it and say like, oh, I did that and that's really cool? I mean I'm proud of the effort I put in. It was, you know, brutal, but you know, I, I know it comes with an asterisk, yeah, for sure. I mean there was doping involved. Absolutely absolutely. Yeah. Uh but I mean I remember that day really well and I remembered uh how tough it was and it was really cold early on and had a great team behind me, a dedicated team. You know, I think there were eight eight riders on that team, and yeah, we, so I had seven guys dedicated to me. And you know, it, it that victory wouldn't happen without the team for sure, for sure. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you remember that race, but there was you know Lance and a Spanish rider up the road, and you know I had a teammate named Nicky Sorensen, and you know without without him, those those two riders stay up the road for sure. And that's just, it's a cool thing to be able to say, like, I won a monument because it's quite, you know, it's like one of these unique bits of cycling. It's racing over a single day, so it's not, you know, that war of attrition. You know, you're having to, there's so many other aspects that are involved in that rather than you just being incredibly strong. And, you know, you've got to have done other things to have been successful on that day, basically. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it, that, that, that's one of the hardest races, one day races, I think, out there. Just t- really hard. I mean, it's like the profile is like shark's teeth, up, down, up, down, up, down, all day long. So, yeah, and one of the, I, I, I did do that race, uh, my first year in 97, my first year racing in Europe full time. And, uh, yeah, I just, I really struggled that day and sort of come back and do it well. You know, that was, that was exciting. But yeah, I mean, I, but I don't forget. I don't. I mean, if you came to my house here in Missoula, Montana, you wouldn't be able to tell I was a bike racer for sure. There aren't. Yeah, yeah, there aren't trophies around. Me. I don't know where that trophy is. It's somewhere probably in storage. But um, I mean, I know the truth behind that victory. I know the truth behind my career. But then, in, on on the say on a different perspective, like later that year, for example, your Tour de France stage win, that incredible ninety kilometers solo. You 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 was that the year you had the the broken collarbone. That you know, wh- whatever you were doing at the time, or you weren't doing, to still have the ability to push through that pain and to to achieve something like that is, 
you know, on on a on a field where others were doing similar things, you know. So, should you not? Can you not? Would you like talk about that with like pride down? You know, if someone asked you about it over dinner and was like, "Ah, oh, I remember seeing that." Would you be proud to tell them that story, or is this something you just kind of go, "Ah, you know, there's a different me." Oh, I might tell the story, but I mean, I'd, I'd share all the details. You know, I'd also, you know, tell them about the asterisk as well. You know, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't class. I I talk to a lot of kids about you know what I did. I've shared with my story with a lot of people, and you know I think it's important to share the story because if we don't figure out wh- if we don't figure out what happened, how it happened, and why it happened, you know, it'll happen again. So you got you got to share this this story, and hope hopefully hopefully it's better today because of it. Really, so I mean, I have two step kids and my own son. I have a six month um, son. And yeah, it's, you know, the truth is important. The truth being truthful and transparent, so important. You know, I, you know, I deviated away from that for some years, but, you know, it's nice to be back on the kind of the right side of things again. So what do you, what do you think to that often cited defense of not just, you know, uh, everyone was doing these things and so therefore it wasn't right, but it was, you know, normal in inverted commas, um, more along the lines of, in the context of bike racing, the results are the results. And if you took away the doping, the results would still be the same, just the times would be slower. Is that a useful or fair assessment? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, I, doping affects everybody differently. Um, you know, some a rider might have a really high hematocrit already. So and so basically they're not gonna be able to use a lot of EPO. Maybe they Maybe their body doesn't respond well to testosterone. Maybe it, I don't, who knows? Um, but it's not the same. You can't say it's, it would be equal. It would be the same without doping. For sure not. For sure not. And there's some riders that maybe they're really talented and all that, but maybe they weren't much of a risk taker. And they were like, maybe I'm going to dope, but I'm going to only dope this much, super, be super safe, like just do the minimal amount. Right? Maybe the other riders aren't doing that. So, yeah, I've heard that argument before, but I don't buy it. And was it the case that uh, riders themselves was it all was all this? You know, was it kind of provided along the same way, along the same lines um, as kit, or was it something that riders had to dip into their own pockets for? And if the latter, you know, did that mean that there were just riders that were inherently better equipped financially to do these things? Um, it started like the like getting a kit. That's the way it started. They they provided everything, and eventually it, it, um, it led to you having to to get it yourself and pay for it yourself. So, but yeah, you're right. You're right. It, then it then it comes down to money. Comes down to finances. What if what if you and another rider had the same kind of same type of contract, but one needs to save money more than the other? You know, you're gonna spend less. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, there's a lot of murkiness, I would say, when it comes to doping. I've got a question before you tie that. Have you ever have you ever been offered an apology? Have you because you've apologized a lot, and understandably so. You've always, especially since you you know you you sort of came clean in 2012 you, with the secret race, and and you're very you're very open now and apologetic and honest. But has anyone ever said, you know what, Tyler, we we're sorry, we you know we fouled you, or has everyone ever done that? When I first came, you know, I had a positive test in 2004, you know, my name, I went from, you know, high on the totem pole to, you know, in the mud. 
yeah, a lot of people said a lot of bad things about me, you know, understandably so. But um, in, in a way, a lot of people thought I was just, uh, I was off on an island by myself, you know, doping. No, no one else was doing that. So I had a lot of negative feedback. Some people have apologized for that, for beating me up so bad, not realizing how big of a problem doping was in the sport at that time. So I did take the brunt of it for a lot of people, for almost like a generation of riders. So what what compelled you to to write um, The Secret Race, which, by the way, is an amazing book. It still stands as the book. It's the book that I've read the fastest <laughs> of any book ever. I devoured it in two two days. It's nice. But yeah, not just not just probably one of the all time great cycling books and um, winner of uh, winner of prizes, William 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 Hill Book of the Year, Sports Book of the Year, um, but an incredibly honest confession, uh, which presumably lots of people would have said you might not want to do that. What what drove you to do it, and why why then, and um, why not say in two thousand and four when you said initially you know you'd been popped that one time, um, yeah. What was the what was the motivation and rationale? Now it's what over ten years ago, you know, the, we had that there was a federal investigation, you know, into uh, the U.S. Postal Team and and Lance Armstrong. And that's the that's when the, the FBI came knocking on my door, basically. And you know, I got subpoenaed and I had to go speak in front of a grand jury in Los Angeles. And that was the first time I like told the truth from from beginning to the end totally transparent I didn't really leave anything out I spoke to the grand jury for like seven hours and you know when I got out of there I, I said you know there's a lot more of the truth to be told and so I thought the best way to do it was just to write a book by far I mean the hardest thing I've ever done it took about almost two and a half years to write oh the co-writer Dan Coyle he was like my therapist you know so, so. and if you were to talk to Dan you know today he'd tell you you know at the very beginning of us working together you know, the truth was just like trickling out of my mouth, you know, slowly. I was very careful with my wording. Think, just thinking a lot about it. By the end, I was, it was just flowing out of me like like water. Uh, did it feel like a massive, I guess that it felt like a weight, like someone had literally just lifted a ton of bricks, right? Yeah, huge, huge. Yeah. Does that make you, I, the one question I had then was like, you today, Tyler, in Missoula with your new your baby son and your two stepdaughters, Stepsons, yeah, stepsons. Stepsons, sorry. Are you happier now than you were in 2002 when you just joined Team uh, CSC? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, there were a lot of uncertainty there. I mean, number one, bike racing, professional bike racing is brutal. It's hard, real, so hard, you know. It looks maybe glamorous from the outside, but it's it's tough, tough sport. You're away from your friends and family all the time. You know, you're constantly under pressure. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't miss any of the, any of that, you know, just that way of life was, you're, you're always under, under the gun, it felt like. You know, if you look at, uh, rugby as a sport or American football is the same, and there's lots of people lobbying to, um, you know, change the rules around head injuries, how they're treated, the, the sorts of kit they wear, you know, almost like de detuning some of the kit that particularly they wear in American football because it just makes, you know, the impact just insane and encourages those big impacts should cycling have more of a kind of lobby around trying to detune just how bloody difficult it is to be honest because one person might you know a good argument might be that you can't do the sport as the sports governing body would have you do it without 
turning to things that are technically illegal within that sport just to get through. And back in 1903, when the first Tour de France came along, people were taking trains <laughs> and you had uh, you, you know, some other team's mates lynching people outside of villages just to stop them riding. And, you know, fast forward to now and we're talking about motor doping um, in the kind of like latest wave. Does the sport need to kind of answer for itself as opposed to pinning these things on riders and sacrificing them at the altar of fair play? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, it is, I mean, it is such a hard sport. You know, it's, in my opinion, it's the hardest sport in the world. I mean, how, how would you, what, what other event, other event would you compare to the Tour de France? You know, just day after day after day, suffering, 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 you know, brutal terrain, brutal, you know, weather conditions, yeah, I don't know. I mean, could they make it easier? Yeah, probably. Probably, you know. I was disappointed. Yeah, or maybe it's like eight, nine years ago. They, it was the second to last day of the Tour de France, and they ride Alpe d'Huez not once but twice, you know. To me, to me, I shook my head at that one. I didn't like that. I didn't like that, you know. No one's sticking up for the riders. Very few are sticking up for the riders. So the riders get put through it and, uh, and don't really have a huge voice which is unfortunate because would there be people in you know the upper echelons of the UCI for example that you or your colleagues of the day would feel have managed to get away scot-free I mean if you're if you're looking to say everything's totally fair and everyone's been treated exactly the way they should probably yeah no I mean plenty of people have slipped through the cracks for sure for sure but you know that's the way life is you know it happens in politics. It happens in business. Yeah. So some get called out like me, like Lance, whatever, but you know, it's not everybody. Uh, because does, does that irk you though? Because like you must look at professional cycling today and see people in guys in team cars who were, uh, did, did what you did when you, they raced, but they didn't get, tarnished with the same vill- like villain brush and and very much i feel with you tyler when you released the secret race that sort of sort of brought you back into a more of a positive light and people saw you in a different circumstance whereas and uh, you know you look at lance and the way people talk about jan ulrich and people talk about other riders of these villains but then there's other guys who it's like yeah of course he can be a ds or in you know, in the team car and it's completely fine. Maybe 10 years ago, that would bother, bother me maybe a little bit, but yeah, not anymore. Not anymore. You know, what, we each have our truth or, and you know, you tell it or you don't tell it. It's up to you really. And, you know, if you don't tell the truth, you know, that then you live with whatever the lie is you're living with, you know, and that's up to you. So I lived with a lot lies for a long time. You know, I get to sit there and grovel with it and so it's not worth it. So yeah, I mean, I'm on the other side of the fence now. Like, you know, I'm kind of far removed from cycling, but yeah, it's it's just different now. I, could, I, I have a you know a clear head now. You know, I'm I'm not having to look look behind me anymore. I like that. I'll take that really any day. This might be a bit of a left field question. Um, so you can ask any question. You can ask anything you want. I pre- I appreciate you might you might either go uh, what? Sorry, I'm not a psychologist. Um, or maybe want to take a bit of time to think about it, but. Often we talk about um, sport with a kind of through a philosophical lens of it being a microscope of 
certain parts of the human condition. You know, some people say sport exists because it's effectively a way for people to go to war without truly hurting each other. It kind of comes from the spirit of competition. And of all the sports, as you said earlier, I can't think of anything like cycling. It just doesn't, there's nothing that touches it in terms of just how insanely hard it is. Just how kind of close you are with your competitors and also the fans are to those to those riders. So you've had a unique view of the kind of human condition, I think, or a certain side of it. What what has cycling taught you about humans? Not cyclists, but about humans. Oh, man. Well, number one, their humans are uh, so, so resilient, you know, right? I mean, psych- just pick the Tour de France, you know, whether you're at the front or the back of the peloton, like you, you, every, every Tour de France, you die a thousand deaths. Like you just wanted to give up, but you know what? You don't give up because everyone else is there and like your team has helped you get there. So you, you don't give up. And, um, I mean, that's taught me a lot about myself, uh, how resilient you know I am, but all, all, all my competitors as well. Right. We're so resilient. We can, we can push way, way beyond where we think we can go, you know, whether that, whether that's in sport, whether that's in family, whether that's in business, you know, we can get a lot more out of ourselves than, than we think we can. And what about, you know, is it a kind of extension question that occurs to me is I just look at, I look at people that I've worked with over the years in a professional capacity. I look at friends, I read news headlines. We see stuff that's going on in the world today. And you kind of feel, are we just, are and again, I appreciate that <laughs> you don't sit as as this yeah sort of like judging godhead. I'm not trying to paint you, put you in that position, but are we just sort of innately doomed to always cheat at sport in the, or cheat at life kind of thing? I mean, we 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 speak about eradicating problems, um, whether it's in football as in soccer, putting in goal line technology to be able to see when a ball goes over the line or not, but also to see what players are doing, having that replay thing, because people will just stick a hand out or pull someone or whatever. And we talk about it like it can be eradicated, but I just wonder if, are we, you know, are we just filthy, dirty cheats <laughs> after a certain point, once we become, you know, stop being children and there's money at stake, is that always going to be the case? I mean, I think in politic, in politics, business, and in sport, yeah, it's, you have a little bit of that win at all cost mentality, right? Whatever it's going to take to get there, right? But I do think we need to take a couple steps back and look at the big picture and, and make smart decisions. You know, taking this little red testosterone pill is that going to, you know, what's that going to be like in ten years from now, in twenty years from now, in thirty years from from now? I mean, it's a lot about what your parents taught you when you were a kid, being honest. And when you come to a decision, when it's like when you have to wait, when you're not quite sure whether you should do go left or right, sometimes you have a little bit of that pause. And usually when that pause means like you're second guessing yourself, you're not sure of it. So, you know, don't make that decision or at least wait on that decision until you have more of a clear understanding. Yeah. I don't know. I rushed into a lot of decisions just because I thought it was that was what the team was expecting me to, to do. Not to say I'm some angel, but I wish I had at least taken some time and really thought about it frontwards and backwards and like, okay, this is what I want to do instead of someone saying, this is what you need to do. But, you know, that's on me. That was my, my bad. I should have 
you know, I knew the difference. You talk, obviously, you speak with someone with such sage advice now because you've, of your life experience. And, and it's really great to hear your sort of honesty and your outlook. But I wondered, did that, what happened in your career and that period where you were weighed down by this, this massive secret, did you ever hate the bike? And if so, when did you rediscover it? And what's your, what's your relationship with the bicycle now? The thing that, you know, was your career? Oh yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, yeah, I definitely had some time where I was not, not loving the bike for sure. For sure. I don't know. There must've been like four or five years. I, besides a, you know, a, a charity event or some charity bike ride, I, I didn't re- really ride my bike at all. I was pretty, it was after the book came, it was a little bit before the book came out during, and then a few years afterwards, I didn't, didn't really like the bike much. You know, it didn't bring me a lot of joy. I didn't like following, you know, I followed cycling, you know, from afar, but, um, but I think it was important to take a little bit of time away. And then now I love cycling more than ever, more than ever. I like following it more than ever. You know, last July, I don't know. I, I spent a lot of time watching the Tour de France on TV, you know, I'm probably more than I ever have in my life. Yeah. And it's so, so cool. All the different storylines that are happening throughout the race, you know, and maybe now there's more camera angles, you know, you've helicopter shot, you're on the bike shots and just more cameras out there on the course you get a better feeling of what's going on in the race. And then you have all these like, people talking about it, you know, podcasts on it. So, you know, you just, you feel like you have that much more information of all like what's actually happening there in France. And I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I'm a, I got big hairy legs now. So yeah, I'm not a, I wouldn't consider myself a, a bike, bike racer anymore. Oh, that's, that's because you're a, you're a bike packer and gravel yeah. rider now. Tyler, yeah. So it's completely so, fine. Yeah. You can I mean, have I legs. get out probably once a week, you know, if I'm lucky. Yeah. In the summertime, maybe a little bit more. I do enjoy what got me back into cycling at first was, um, was this, this, uh, thing called bike packing or bike touring. Yeah. I didn't really know much about it. I didn't know, know anything about how to, how to do it, but yeah, I slowly, but surely, yeah, I've done a bunch of trips kind of all over the world and it's a ton of fun. I, you know, Come being a bike racer, it was kind of like, that's like the opposite of being a bike racer. It's very slow. Take your time, you know, stop, take pictures and take the low, the road less traveled kind of thing. It's a beautiful sport. And as we all know, it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to, you know, find sponsors. It's hard to get, get support, but, um, it's, I mean, it's incredibly tough, incredibly gratifying sport. Uh, and I mean, there's nothing like it. Like when you asked me earlier about, you know, and I first picked up the bike, you know, just that when I was a kid, when your father took, took off the training wheels and just being able to ride down the street with the wind blowing through your hair, that freedom, you know, eventually being able to ride to the next town and maybe after that, the next town further. And to me, that was so cool. That freedom, that freedom. You weren't old enough to drive a car yet, but you could ride a bike. I'm a little bit sad. I turned my back to it for a few years, but I think it was, you know, important for me to kind of figure everything out. there we have it james um tyler hamilton uh that was a great conversation we we kind of you know we in the prep you know in the run-up to this interview obviously listeners you know we do you know preparations we watch other interviews that tyler's done james and i you know both read secret race uh tyler's incredible biography um and we understood that he was quite frank and quite open but I think he both impressed us both with how honest he was and how 
willing he was to field anything we wanted to ask, really. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that struck me. It's a, it's a difficult thing to separate, and I'm sure there will be people listening to this who sort of, I don't know, fundamentally almost disagree with even talking about these sorts of things or talking to the people involved because it kind of might feel a little bit like, but, you know, that's that's partly what they signed up for is one day just being completely ostracised from the thing they once loved. But, you know, um, personally, I think, you know, everyone, everyone deserves second, third, fourth chances and stuff. And within that, I do really find talking to someone like Tyler, really, well, talking to Tyler, really quite inspirational because he's so frank in quite an alarming way. I think there's a couple of times where your and I's jaws sort of dropped and you kind of think, am I allowed to ask this? In a way that you would just never be able to do it with anybody else. And I think within that, I hope that people listen to such accounts and it does actually influence by telling those stories, although they are stories, many of which we've heard before, keeping on telling them keeps that idea alive and hopefully in some, you know, it keeps that conversation going and it's that conversation that will hopefully keep cycling, you know, cleaner day by day. Otherwise you, you take your foot off your gas and then suddenly things creep in again. Cause we, yeah. So I, I just, I find, I think it's really important basically to, to keep telling those stories and I salute him for having a chat with us. Yeah, in, in any walk of life, remembering the past is, you know, in, incredibly useful in, in, in terms of learning and making sure we don't make the similar similar mistakes going forward. And he's he seems incredibly at one with himself now as well. I don't know if, if I was in his position, knowing my personality, for example, I don't know if I'd be so forgiving or so happy to be sort of okay with other people around me like he spoke about you know and he spoke about before is in 2004 when he you know is found to have blood doped right and he comes back and he's a bit of a pariah in the peloton and people were mean to him and he got apologized you know people have come and apologized him since I don't know if I'd be big enough as a person to accept that because I'd be so resentful about all of these people and potentially all of these people still earning a living off of something that I know that they also cheated at, like I did. And I and I, I don't think I'm, I don't know if I'm big enough of a person. I don't, you know, if we were both doing, you know, if we were both cheating by getting someone to do our, write our features for us in the magazine, James, and I got found out and you didn't, I don't know if in 10 years I'd be so happy <laughs> to see you. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, too right, too right. And... I think with there's something about an ability to apologize uh, that speaks very hard. You know, it tells a very specific story of that person to be able to like shoulder those things. But unfortunately does come with, you know, does leave the door open to detractors saying, but yeah, I mean, great. You're, those, those apologies sell your books and those apologies get you on podcasts and those apologies keep you relevant. And that has been leveled, um, you know, at anyone that's written a doping kind of account of a book. But I would, yeah, just from talking to Tyler, then that's all, that's the first time I've spoken to him. But he, he, you know, what what people can't actually see is actually see Tyler. We saw him; he was on Zoom then, um, and that in of itself, he just entirely came across as like that guy gets it. He gets it. He understands 
what's happened, his part in it, and he's prepared to talk about it. And there was no, I feel like he, you know, that that I found actually really quite heartbreaking when he just said, I don't keep anything around. You wouldn't know my, I was a bike racer if you came to my house. And that I think probably speaks volumes. I don't feel like this is a person who in any way wants to be where he is. I think he'd very, I heard in another you know, podcast that he was really quite happy to never have spoken about it and ultimately had to um, because of the subpoena from the FBI. But that's a testament to him as a person because now he, he does. And as you said, like he does it with the, the want for it never to happen again. So yeah, hats off to him there. Um, yeah, very, yeah, very interesting guy. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it, listener, because it was, you know, it was quite, you know, there'll be some of you that think as we've already mentioned that we shouldn't be talking about these topics anymore that it should be water under the bridge or we should have closed that chapter on it but you know every now and then it's it's worthwhile reminding ourselves of what did happen so that we can as we've already said learn from that in the future um thank you very much again Lindsay, our producer for putting together today's episode uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the Cyclers Magazine podcast, be sure to give us a like, uh, rate us, review us on Apple and Spotify because it makes me and James smile. And obviously also share it with people that you care about and, and impart, our, impart our wisdom onto them as well. So you're not just sharing it, keeping it to yourselves, eh, James? Um, <laughs> Sharing's caring. I know, mate. You're you're very sage and wise. Um, <laughs> so, but, wisdom you know, is a big word, my friend. For now, James, let's uh, get back to the sunshine outside. James, have you heard of the Wahoo System training app? The Wahoo System training app, I have, but please elaborate. System utilises world-class coaches with epic content to help you take your performance to the next level. With more than 650 training plans to choose from, System combines off-the-bike workouts, including yoga, strength and mental training, with comprehensive workouts on the bike to not only make you a better cyclist, but a better athlete. This all sounds good, but tell me more. System also allows you to train with the likes of Phil Guyman and Ian Boswell in its A Week With series, ride the world's most iconic routes through its on-location feature, and relax with one of its inspiration documentaries. Oh, and my favourite thing is its Pro Series Workouts feature, which matches your training ride to actual pro races, which is quite good. This is most excellent. Where do I sign up? Well, to start your 14-day free trial... All you have to do is download the Wahoo system app on iOS, Android or desktop today.